You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome back to the podcast today, Peter Hyatt, pastor of the Sanctuary downtown in Denver. Peter has appeared a number of times on the podcast and has played an important role in helping us all to remember an original, wonderful gospel which has unfortunately been forgotten by much of Western Christendom. Peter is a preacher's kid who has been around the church and its ups and downs his whole life. Through it all, Peter has maintained a good sense of humor and has also come to see a truly spectacular vision of the grace of God, which will ultimately be triumphant in every single person's life. Peter has been good enough to walk with us through many of the chapters of the book of Romans, and today we will walk together through Romans chapter 7. Welcome back once again, Peter Hyatt, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Well, thank you, David. It's great to be here. Just listen to your uh, podcast with Tom Talbot and love that. Yeah, it's really fun to get to talk to Dr. Talbot. Well, before we get into our exegesis of the seventh chapter of Romans today, I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us about a couple of things. First, the kind of destructive habit you got into as a child when you discovered germs. (laughs) And second, about how the Protestant reformer Martin Luther got into a similar kind of habit involving the confession of his sins. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, definitely. I I can tell you about that. The the way it ties into Romans chapter 7 in the sense that in the middle of the chapter, he starts talking about sin and neuroses and kind of that cycle of addictive behavior. And when I was, when I was a little kid, I was a happy kid. And then somewhere along the line, I think in school, I learned about germs, that there were these unseen enemies that looked on your skin that could kill you and you had to watch out for them. And so I took that seriously and started washing my hands a lot until uh, they were finally like bloody and cracked open. And the more I learned about germs, the, the worse it got, because not only were they lurking on the outside, but they even came out of my body with the realization that I had a body that basically, I wasn't able to put all the words on it at that time, but this is shocking to even say, we we ignore this, but we all eat life, that's what food is, and we poop death, and it's full of germs. And so not only were they all around me, but they were coming out of me. So I washed my hands a lot. My hands started cracking and bleeding. My parents said, stop that. And I thought, okay, I should stop it. But the more I thought about stopping it, the more I thought about germs and the more I worried about germs. And then the more I just compulsively washed my hands, they finally took me to the doctor and the doctor looked at me and said, stop washing your hands. Um, But I just, I I struggled to stop uh, washing my hands and which is kind of a theme, you know, throughout history, Pilate washes his hands after crucifying Jesus and um, all sorts of people have neuroses over all sorts of things. I think it's kind of a beautiful picture of sin that 
if you want to stop drinking, you you think about drinking, which makes you want to go drink. If you go on a diet, you try to stop thinking, tell yourself, stop thinking about donuts, which makes you think about donuts. And if you want to stop sinning, you say to yourself, stop thinking about sin. But I think sin at the very heart of it is being stuck on yourself. So the more I think about me not sinning, the more I think about me, which is the very essence of sinning. So someone has to Someone has to deliver me from this body of sin and death, which is stuck on itself. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a big theme in Romans 7. So I think what I shared in this sermon was my dad helped me a lot with it. I just had a great dad. He was a pastor and a great, I think, a beautiful picture of God the Father. But I remember I remember walking out of the bathroom one day. I don't, I think this is unusual for kids, but I had just gotten number two. And I remember my dad was standing at the sink and I said, Hey, dad, guess what? Um, I went number two and didn't even wash my hands. And I remember my dad looking at me and saying, Oh, Peter, I am so proud of you. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, uh, I kind of started as that the sermon a few months ago on the middle of Romans seven, kind of telling that story because I think that's kind of the bind that we all get in. And Martin Luther, of course, was a beautiful expression of that in his struggle with sin, and that the more he confessed his sin, the more he thought of his sin. And um, you know, the stories about Martin Luther are fascinating. That he he spent one day, I think, all day in the confessional and. The priest finally got just fed up and said, look, you know, why don't you come back when you've committed a real sin? According to Luther, he had this revelation about salvation by grace through faith and the Wittenberg Tower. And when I was in college uh, studying geology, I took some theology classes at CU or something. I had to write a paper on Eric, uh, I think it's Eric Erickson's theory, that Luther discovered the the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith when he had a great anal release on the toilet in the Wittenberg Tower. And I wrote the paper about how ridiculous that was. But the older I get, the more I think, no, there's a whole lot that ties together there. So uh, maybe so, because the problem with sin is it it has to do uh, with our um, tendency to get stuck on ourselves, to justify ourselves, to redeem ourselves. And it's a trap that we get stuck in in ourselves. So yeah, that was the story I I told. And um, at the end, I'll tell you the story about potty training my son, John. How about that? Okay. Okay. Something to look for, a potty training story to look forward to. Yeah. Hey, well, before we, I know you wanted to go through the verses in Romans 7. And so I was looking at them the other day thinking, oh man, how do we, how do we do this without just seeming kind of insane? But when I preach through Romans 7, there are kind of three different sermons, and they were titled Sex Education for Pharisees was the first one. Uh, what to do with your sin was the second one. And by the way, what you do with your sin is you flush it down. That's a teaser right there. That's how you get rid of it. <laughs> and then uh, the last one was on Easter when I, I talked about camping with my dad in the tabernacle. But I wanted to ask you, David, could I... Could I mention real quick, I think there, I was looking at these old sermons and realized there are stories that Paul had in his mind that I don't think we have in our minds anymore. So when we go to Romans 7, we go 
we're reading something that was written 2000 years ago and we're reading it from the standpoint of people that have been through hundreds of years of wars fighting over the legal implications that are in chapter seven. And we kind of miss these stories that we know vaguely, but I think we're very much at the forefront of Paul's mind when he was writing, writing chapter seven. So if I could just mention these, I, I just jotted these down looking okay. over. If I could mention these five stories. And I think if, you know, people listening could just hold these thoughts in the back of their mind, not even put them all together. But as we walk through the verses, hopefully they'll see how these stories show up. So is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the first story that we mentioned before is the story of the garden. And I think Paul uh, um, took that story very seriously. We don't take it seriously anymore. Uh, the the garden stories, the first three chapters of Genesis, for me, used to be the most embarrassing chapters in the Bible, and now I think they're they're my favorite. But Paul will talk a lot about Adam. He'll talk about the man, and in Paul's mind, he, well, he was very much aware that Adam is all of us, and I think he also had this idea that I think is very much in the text, although we've missed it that the story of the garden is really the story of every one of us and that the garden isn't simply some ancient garden with two weird naked people in it and talking snake, but it's a picture of the depths of each of our own souls because we each are the, we each are the tabernacle or the temple. And in the depths of the temple, um, there was this inner sanctuary that was a picture of the garden. And in the garden, there are these trees that I think are utterly fascinating because they're integrally, integrally related to the cross. And um, the whole Bible is really telling the story of how we're created in God's image. And we've kind of relegated the garden back to this ancient thing and gotten all worked up over dinosaurs and arcs and kind of missed the, the story of the garden. So he's, he's going to be talking about the garden story, how we're created in God's image and the, the trees. The second story he's telling that we don't talk about very much in church anymore is the story of human sexuality in a very fascinating and positive way because Jesus is the ultimate Adam and humanity is his bride. And, he, and, and in Paul's mind and in the ancient mind and in scripture, in the covenant of marriage, two bodies really become one body. And so becoming one body with Jesus is a wild and fascinating idea. Yeah, that really, also, when, when you get into Romans 7, you realize, wait a second, and, and as a man, and Paul even talks this way, I, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm the woman in this text yeah absolutely yes and he's gonna and that jesus wants to get you pregnant well that freaks guys out um but once you kind of get through the shock of it it's so profoundly beautiful and it makes sense of all of these things that paul says and it, it's kind of tragic because we've turned romans into some kind of legal argument and i, I do think it's almost like a legal argument against legal arguments <laughs> and this, it is this beautiful, romantic story that we've utterly lost. So that's going on. And then the third story I'd call the poop story, 
but that has to do with the problem of the flesh and that's related to these other to all these stories in that the flesh is um we've we've turned the flesh into well whatever the church kind of wants to demonize at the moment but i think what Paul is saying is that the problem with the flesh, when I think about my flesh, my physical body, is that it's isolated. And that's where the picture of sexuality and covenant becomes so important. So my body naturally only feels its own pleasure and only feels its own pain. And the one place where I begin to experience something different than that is with my bride and the covenant of marriage in communion. Now, those are all fascinating theological terms. But my flesh is stuck on itself. And my flesh is that thing, that individual body that eats life and poops death. So kind of like the the shock for any little kid at a certain point is like, oh, my gosh, what is this coming out of me? And then, you know, we spend the rest of our lives kind of denying that. But I think there's this wonderful message from the Lord that, yeah, there's a problem with your body. And that is that it's isolated and cut off from every other body. Yeah, there's an interesting, we'll get into this, but mm-hmm. uh, God is um, psychokoi, spirit, spiritual body. Uh, yeah. No, pneumatikoi. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that's right. There's we'll, a, he talks about a psychokos body and a pneumatikos body in 1 Corinthians 15, and that we all have a psychokos body now. So I think we have a physical body and a psychic body, which is like my mental construct. So it's not just that my physical body eats life and poop death. My fleshly psychic body eats life and poops death. In other words, when I'm, I compete with the people around me. And when you think about what we really mean by competition is that somebody else's victory is a threat to me. So I like to win at the expense of somebody else's loss. And mm-hmm. in a physical body, that's called cancer. And in the spiritual body, I think that's that's called sin. And this pneumaticus body, well, and this is, okay, so this is the fourth story, okay? The fourth story, I think, is he's telling of the body of Christ. So that, and these are things Paul says very explicitly in so many places in scripture. And I think the modern mind just kind of thinks of them as poetry. I don't think Paul thought of them as poetry. I think he was speaking very literally, for lack of a better word, that ultimately I am not alone, but I'm part of this amazing body. And in fact, all of humanity is part of this body um, that is that is Christ's body. So, And that's I, a dramatic, once you, once you move from mm-hmm. that the body of Christ, there's one idea, you know, because we look at the body of Christ as the church, but then once you, and there's a certain way of understanding that, but you all, once you realize that the body of Christ is humanity, and that ultimately all of humanity will become the church, that yeah. the body, well, then that really is a well, pretty it, dramatic move. Yeah, it changes everything. And in Ephesians, there are places where he even talks like all of creation is his body. But there's this wonderful verse, Ephesians 1, 1.10, where Paul talks about the mystery of his will, God's will, set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of, of time. That's another thing we see differently. In Paul's mind, time has a beginning and an end, and there's a fullness, and, and God well, exists. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Well, like in Ephesians, that that uh, God is going to continue to show us his riches in the coming ages, 
So there's mm-hmm. there's this progression of ages. And then at the end of the ages, God is all in all, but that doesn't mean everything's over and we don't exist anymore and God doesn't exist anymore. It just means the ages have now come to its completed purpose that we might be mature together and God would be, and we would be all in all. Yeah. So it, it the way my understanding is that the scripture really sees at least six ages, which are the six days of creation. And then there's this age to come, which is described by the word Ionios. And in that age, chronological time doesn't function. This it's swallowed up by eternity somehow. And so when he says the fullness of time, I think in this remarkable way that our brains can only barely begin to understand God's eternity or um, God's, the way God, time, God, God doesn't exist in time. He exists outside of time, but all of time exists within time. So God is telling this story in time. And if you think of it like a book, you get you, at the beginning and the end, and then you set the book on the shelf. And then you can enter that timeline at any point once mm-hmm. you finish the book and you get the plot and the plot is Jesus. So anyway, this verse is, the mystery of Israel set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Now that word unite, years ago preaching through Ephesians, I got into digging into this world word and it's this Greek verb, anakephalio, which means to bring together under one wounded head. So he says to bring together under one wounded head all things in him. That means that somehow all things are his body. So then this is fascinating because that word anakephalio um, got translated like three or four hundred years later into the Latin word recapitulato or something like that. And then it was then I didn't realize this at the time, but that was the word that was then used to describe the recapitulation theory of the atonement, which, you know, was advanced by Irenaeus. It's one of like the very first quote theories of the atonement. And Irenaeus, I think, was supposedly a disciple of Papias or someone who was a disciple of John. So it's like one of the very first perspectives on what was happening at the cross, which I believe really is that tree in the garden. And when you, when you look at it that way, if if that's the story that Paul is telling, we, we, we've looked at Romans 7 thinking Paul is describing, as evangelicals, that Paul is describing penal substitutionary atonement theory. And I think Paul talks about Jesus as a substitute and a ransom and a satisfaction. But the more I look at it, I go, I don't think the idea of penal substitution was really even ever in Paul's mind. In fact, Scripture says that there there really is not a penal substitute because God is not into punishing things just for punishment's sake. That's an idea that kind of entered into theological discourse long after this time. But instead, what Paul is describing is Jesus putting Adam back together, like Adam blew up at the tree in the garden in the beginning And then Jesus puts them back together with his very body. So the picture in Paul's mind is of Jesus redeeming all things through his spirit, which draws us all together. So the problem with my old flesh is that it does not submit to God's righteousness. Paul's going to say that in a few chapters. But that the spirit of Jesus does 
does submit to submits to God's righteousness, and that submission is called love. And so, love is the thing that pulls the entire body back together in grace. So that he's telling that story, and then lastly, number five. It's related to that. He's telling the story of the first death and the second death. So Paul's going to talk about death twice in Romans 7. And I think that he's going to say this crazy line where he says, I was once alive apart from the law, which freaks everybody out because they're going, well, when when was that? But I think what Paul is saying is that the moment we take knowledge of good and evil and try to justify ourselves, we create an ego and you can see it in little kids and that's like the first death when you um when you are exiled from the garden in your own heart and you begin to judge yourself you, you know a little a one-year-old they, they haven't really developed the ability to judge themselves they think they're connected to their parents and at a certain point they become self-reflective and they begin to condemn themselves and condemn mm-hmm. the people around them and they basically take the position of the creator and trap themselves and then paul's going to talk about a second death and and he's going to talk about dying in christ when he goes back to the tree well you can you can think of it this way that the first death is when i in my psyche become an individual isolated human being and you remember that um there was a there was a problem with well we we get in a minute but adam Adam was isolated. He didn't know he was isolated. So a little child is isolated, but they, don't, they really don't know that. But there's a point when the law comes in, knowledge of good and evil, and they experience that isolation. When we come to the cross, it's like we have to die to that old psyche that we have created. And God gives us a new psyche, which is his psyche, which is beginning to think of David Artman, not as my competitor in the field of theology or whatever, um, but as a part of my body. So what's good for David Artman is good for Peter Hyatt. What's good for Peter Hyatt is good for David Artman. So ultimately, when we were all brought back together in Jesus, David Artman eats a cheeseburger and Peter Hyatt tastes it because we're one body and yet we're individuals and yet we live in this communion. Okay, so... There are these five stories. Yeah, at least. And, and and there are just beautiful, wonderful stories. And my experience is that people just don't believe them. And not only do they don't believe them, they think that the Christian responsibility is to like put these things in the closet or put them under the rug and not talk about them. Things like poop and human sexuality and um, this idea of the body of Christ. And I think they were forefront in Paul's mind. And he, he's alluding to them as he goes through chapter seven. Well, this is a really interesting way to uh, put these sort of five pictures out there and to try to get back in the ancient uh, thinking pattern of Paul. And so let's go now to Romans chapter seven, and we'll just go through the, I'll read each of the verses, and I'll just read it from the New International Version, and then you can comment it based upon whatever version you like or however you see things in the original Greek text. So uh, beginning with uh, Romans 7, 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? 
Yeah, one little thing that's interesting to note is the use of the article in Greek. So in in the original, Paul doesn't use the article when he says, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. He just says, I'm speaking to those who know law. And then he says that the law, then he uses the article, lords over the man only as long as he lives. So when he says the man, I think he's alluding to to Adam or humanity. And when he talks about law, when he doesn't use the article, I think he's he's alluding to the knowledge of good and evil. And the you know, I've so many things became clear to me when I realized, wait a minute, that temptation way back in the garden was to take knowledge of good and evil and to justify the self. Well, that's exactly what we do with the law. And so Paul's going to be talking about the law in here. And, and, but then the law that God gives to Moses, I think he refers to as the law. That's the law that the Jews have, but every, but he's already established everybody all over the world has law. It's, it's in their heart. Well, I'm, I'm right now I'm looking at the uh, Romans 7 interlinear that you can get through Bible Hub mm-hmm. and just go to, you know, BibleHub.com. There's lots of interlinears out there, but it is interesting that you can see there's certain times when uh, when when the law, well, Nomos, has an article and certain times when it doesn't. And yeah. that's mm-hmm. I think that is I think that is a helpful, helpful distinction. OK, verse two. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think we probably have to read a little bit further to get his his argument here. So should we do that? Can we just because I go, yep. Okay. Verse three. So then. If she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's keep going. Just another, another verse there. Okay, verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Yeah, so that is a that's a really, I think, confusing four verses until you back away and look at the picture differently. And then suddenly for me, it, it makes sense. But I think there are a few things uh, that, that are important to notice. So, you know, being modern, the NIV says brothers and sisters, you know, originally it's just my brothers, but it's fascinating when he says, likewise, my brothers, he's referring to all of his brothers as the wife, right? So the picture suddenly spins around and he's going, hey, y'all think of yourself as the bride, which is, is not a weird new thing that Paul is doing. That's the way God talks to Israel throughout the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, well, Isaiah, Hosea, it's over and over this massive theme in scripture that we seem to miss. I think part of it is because of the Reformation and that Protestants threw the baby out with the bathwater. So the, you know, the the idea of venerating Mary and tying Mary to the church, that's all, those, those are all 
they're all themes that make Protestants nervous. But in the Old Testament, Israel is the bride. Modern translations will always try to translate into a paradigm. So you knew growing up in the in the 80s, right, being a young evangelical, it was always about let's make this simple for people. Well, the problem with making things simple is that it assumes that you know what the Bible is saying before you translate it. So by trying to make things simple, I think we, a lot of times we make things more complex because we end up with a picture that's not in scripture. So it's, so um, likewise, my brothers, you also have died. I think a more literal translation is you were put to death and then not simply to the law, it's a, I think it's a dative there, but in or by the law. So you were put to death by that thing that Moses did on the mountain. And, but, but also then through the body of, of Christ. So everything was put to death somehow and, and Christ died so that you may belong to, to another to him who has been raised from the dead. Well, that's also Christ. So that's kind of confusing, right? So you were somehow put to death with Christ, which Paul is going to say very clearly in other places. And yet you were also somehow raised from from the dead with Christ. And Christ is your husband. Um, so, but I think Paul is, um, Paul is speaking into a picture that has just helped me tremendously. So in my sermons lately, almost every sermon, I show this picture by Giovanni de Modena, who is some artist in the 15th century that painted chapel walls. And you can find pictures like this um, in ancient art. But the picture is of Jesus hanging on a tree. And the tree looks like it could be the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But he's hanging there as if he's being He's not being crucified. He's just hanging there like fruit on the tree. And at the base of the tree is all of humanity looking up at him. Well, if you think that, if you consider that, or just live with this idea, and I can justify it, I think very well, but that there is this tree in the middle of that garden that somehow represents your heart. And on the tree is uh, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And you could think of that as, as like wisdom, but wisdom in, in the flesh. And if you follow the argument through scripture, you realize, well, Jesus is wisdom, like in the Proverbs or, or whatever. And good and evil is not a bad thing. Good and evil is a good thing. But Jesus is also something else. He's the life. So the life is hanging on the tree. And humanity is at the base of, so humanity is at the base of the tree and, and we're the bride and on the tree is our helper. That's a story that God, that we've lost that's in those first few chapters of Genesis because you remember that something was not good in Adam even before the fall. God says it's not good that the Adam, Ha-Adam, humanity is alone. And then he divides the the Adam into male. He puts them to sleep. He divides them into male and female. But the shocking thing as you read the story is that Eve is not really Adam's helper and Adam is not really Eve's helper, which is Azer in the Hebrew. 
But as you follow the word azer throughout the Old Testament, our helper is God. So it's like the problem with Adam was he's there in the presence of, the God, of God, even before the fall. And he's alone because he doesn't know who God is. He doesn't. And, and God is the good. Scripture's going to go on to say that. So humanity is at the base of the tree and we're the bride. And on the tree is our helper who turns out to be the eschatos Adam. That's what Paul has already told them in chapter five. He's the Superman. He's the he's what all of us need to fulfill us. And then hanging over the whole picture is this judgment from chapter one of Genesis. And it's it's the very first um, command um, on day six. God says, be fruitful and multiply <laughs> and then exercise dominion. So the very and this gets back to our other stories. So the very first command of God is um, on a very f- fundamental level is um commune with each other in the sacrament of the covenant, have sex and bear fruit. So they're standing, the bride is standing at the base of the tree, looking up at the groom and asking the question, how do I fulfill God's command to be fruitful? Well, there are are two ways that the bride can access the groom. If you think about it, the bride can seize control and take knowledge of the good. Um, view the good as a thing that can be appropriated and quite literally eaten. <laughs> you eat you eat the thing on the tree and you kill it. So remember, we said the problem with flesh is we eat life and we poop death. And, and that's not just some ancient story because the thing on the tree is truth and the thing on the tree is life and the thing on the tree is love. The thing on the tree is the judgment of God. So the question is, how do I, as an individual, relate to the judgment of God? How do I relate to truth? Is truth something that I can just take and use however I would like? That's called lying. Is the life something that I can just use however I would like? Well, that ends up being murder. Is love something that I can just buy and sell and use? Well, that ends up being adultery. And you realize that these are all the things that God keeps accusing Israel of in the Old Testament. But there's a second way that the bride can know the groom. And that is instead of eating him, instead of consuming him like an object, instead of using him to justify herself. And you remember, that's the temptation of the snake, right? Hey, why don't you take that thing on the tree and use it to make yourself like God? Well, that's what sin is. We, we, we are all trying to be God, and we end up using um, God's judgment to justify ourselves. We use Jesus. But the second thing the bride can do is she could submit to the righteousness of God, which is a phrase Paul will use in the future, or because the thing on the tree is the righteousness of God. Jesus is righteousness. Jesus is faithfulness. Well, if she does that, that's like a bride surrendering to her groom on her honeymoon night. Well, and then she knows, and the Bible uses the word know in these two different ways. Then she knows because she is known. And the result, so the result of knowledge in the first scenario is death, seizing control. And I should say this, there are things that we can know that way. So science and technology is, is, is that, and I love science. I was a science major. 
but the things that science can know are objects. So science is very good at learning about sodium chloride and plate tectonics and and objects, but science isn't much help when it comes to trying to figure out what how to love your wife. Um, and science, um, so science is good with manipulating objects, which then leads to technology. But if you want to bear fruit, um, if you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, control of self, science isn't going to be, you're going to need something much more powerful. And the thing on the tree is those things. It's our helper. It's our groom. And if I submit to Jesus, and I think the biblical word for this is faith, but even that is a gift that comes from him. Well, then I become pregnant. And you'll notice that Paul ends this discussion with this phrase, in order that we may bear fruit for God. I think the modern mind thinks, oh, if I'm going to go be fruitful, I'm going to go out and get a bunch of workbooks on fruit and things I can do to be fruitful. And I think Paul is saying, yeah, well, that's fine. That's called religion, but actually it, it will kill you and it kills Jesus because you're treating Jesus as an object to be consumed by that self-centered self. But if I want to bear fruit in the, in the, in the mind of the, of, of the biblical mind, fruit isn't a work that humans can do. Fruit is what happens when a man has intercourse with his bride and she becomes pregnant. In other words, fruit is a, is a miracle. Um, it's not the work of, of human flesh. So I think the picture Paul is painting is that we were we took the life of Christ on the tree. That's the sin in the garden. And we were married to a corpse because we killed, we killed Jesus. <laughs> and so when we come back to the tree and see what we've done, that we've killed Jesus and we've killed reality, well, the miracle is that Jesus rises from the dead. Even the very thing I've ingested into my the depths of my being, he rises from the dead and he gives me life as a gift. So suddenly the picture, it, it, and see how the picture changes, because if it's the first picture, it's very scientific and legal. And men in institutions that give out degrees and awards can control it. Pastors and in institutions can control it. They can offer classes on it. If that's the kind of knowing that we're talking about, well, that's called religion. But the second kind of knowledge comes from something that's very existential and personal. And what I can do as a pastor is I can introduce people. I can talk about the one who loves them in the hopes that they will surrender to that person and the power in what I'm doing is the word that I speak, which is a story. It's not a threat, but it's a story. So I said a whole lot there, but I think that's what Paul is talking about. By, by being married to the law, you're, it's like being married to the corpse of Jesus. But um, if you want to bear fruit, then you're married to a living Lord. Well, that's all. That's really fascinating. I just made a little note to myself that we died to the law, not just to be freed from it, but to be free to belong to Christ so that we can be fruitful. But fruit trees naturally bear fruit. And mm. in my ministry, I think maybe the, one of the things that I did that I would change if I could go back and do it again 
was I was helping people to try to grow spiritually. And so they would tell me, okay, we great. We want to grow spiritually. How do we do that? And then I would give them lists of things to do. Yeah. So I was trying to be hopeful, but I think that what I did was created the idea. Okay. That being fruitful is this thing that we do, not yeah. this thing that happens to us because of the relationship that we are in. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of well, wish the, I could go back and change that now. Well, yeah. But the, the wonderful thing about the story that God is telling is that God even uses that because, um, in the very place that Jesus dies, which is the very place where he rises, right? So when I, so what I'm trying to say is God uses our poop because seeds are fertilized by poop. <laughs> so Paul, you know, Paul, Paul will say there's a function for the, for the law. And that's to point out that we're dead. So we all kind of go through that phase of saying, well, I'm going to make myself righteous. And by the way, I'm going to be more righteous than everybody else at youth group. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, we struggle to try to be righteousness and what we bear is poop. Yeah. And then you, yeah. you think, well, that's weird because I was trying to bear something else, but what I really produced was poop, which yeah, gets but, us to the next, which gets well, us to I, the well, next. Okay. Yeah, and remember that if you put a seed in poopy ground, something, a miracle happens, right? So poop is fertilizer for life once you see what it is. Um, anyway, yeah, so let's keep going. Okay, so yeah, because the next verse gets into this, verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore the fruit for death. Yeah, so... You know, and that there's there are a few little Greek things in there that are interesting. I think I was I kind of have my I'm trying to remember all of this, but I I think I think the death is, but it the ESV has four death, and there's an article in front of death. So he's talking about the death. I think he's right. he's reminding them of hey, remember what happened in the garden, and bear fruit to or of death. In other words. You know, and and God said, "The day you eat of it, you, you die." And to, I think that's to kind of the first thing. Tothanato, Tothanato is the is that dative in, there in the dative dative masculine sing, singular. Yeah, so the dative case is challenging because I did a little reading trying to figure this out because um, I'm no Greek scholar. Just had Greek reading and Greek at Fuller, but that the dative case was going out of style. So the translator kind of has to guess with the dative at what's being, what's being said. And there are several different possibilities and depending on the picture in your head kind of, kind of changes. But I do think that he's saying, look, when you live by the law, everything dies. So um, it's not simply that, that, that this thing happened somewhere in ancient time in a garden, but in the garden of your heart, we all know what it is to, to say, well, no, I'm right. And then trying to figure out how to justify yourself. Because once you go down that road, you, you create a lot of poop. Yeah. I was just thinking that, uh, that we bore the fruit to death or death fruit, whatever you yeah. want to think about it. But I think death fruit is poop. Yeah. That's the, <laughs> yeah. And like you said, Apparently, God can use all things. Um, all right, let's keep on. Verse okay. 6. Yeah. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit 
and not in the old way of the written code. Yeah, that's that's such a fascinating sentence for a few reasons. Um, but he says, now we are released from the law, from that old arrangement, um, having died. So I think Paul, Paul, and now in a minute, Paul's going to talk about when the first death, but that's really the second death, that when he came to Christ, he he died, and yet he was already dead. So that's a fascinating concept when you get to the Revelation, and it talks about the second death. So the death of that older old arrangement is is life. So if, if you think of this is the way I think of it, the first death, if if humanity is meant to be a body, well, the day that I think of myself as cut off from the rest of the body, I die. So if I cut off my finger, put it on the table, looks alive, but you, you would come up and say, that finger's dead, lest you sew that back on really quick. Mm-hmm. Well, if you sew it back on really quick, that's the death of its death. So anyway, we can get back to that in a minute. But then he says this other really fascinating thing. He says, so that we serve in the new way um, uh, of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Well, he's not simply saying that the way we serve now is is new and the old way is old. He's He's saying that it's always new, that when you live in the spirit, you're living in the nowness. And so if you think of that relationship, if I have a relationship with God where he was, I'm in a living communion with him. And you can put this in a lot of different pictures of like a father and a son or a husband and a wife. Well, the way I navigate the world is different than if that person is dead, if they're just information. So if they're dead, I have a map and the map is like the law. And so I'm actually never living in the moment. I'm always comparing, I'm always judging myself by this thing in the past, hoping to be something else in the future. But if I'm living in the spirit, I'm living in a communion and fruit happens, like you just said. It's not something Mm -hmm. that I try to do. But, you know, when I'm with Susan, there are things that show up in my life that I'm, I'm not... Well, on a good day, I'm not trying to be happy. Um, I I just kind of am, and I'm not I'm not trying to be good. I I care about her, and um, but I live from a different place. And I think uh, Paul is saying that when we live by the law, we really are in in a prison, which is which is fascinating because there are a lot of there's a lot of psychology now, pop stuff out in the literature that I'm going, yeah, they're saying what the Bible has said all along but we forgot about that um, when we get trapped in our own mind, our ruminating mind, the mind that is always judging the self, which really is the ego, we kind of get divorced from ourself and we get trapped in ego, pride, insecurity. But when we find a way to live in the now, and that's what a lot of meditation is, and I think that's what a lot of prayer is. Prayer is simply get back in the moment with Jesus. And Jesus is always there. God is always there with open arms saying, I make every every moment new. So, but to get into the now, I have to lose my old psyche, that old psyche of, of justifying myself, judging everything around me and enter into a new psyche that no, I'm I'm beloved and I'm with the father and Jesus is with me now. And I can live out of this place of communion or, or worship. 
All right, let's go on to verse 7. Yeah. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a fascinating verse. Um, and, you know, the I think things to note is, in the, yet if it had not been for law, and the article's missing there in it's not the law, but law. So he's saying if it would have been for law, I think he's saying any law. And I think the church has turned it into ceremonial Old Testament laws. I think Paul is just saying, no, any knowledge of good and evil, um, I would have not have known sin. In other words, or what, not a, the article's there with that too, the sin. But if you think of a little kid, um, they really don't know good and evil. They kind of live happy and um, they don't know what sin is until they get to a certain stage and they become self-conscious. Um, it says, I would not have known what it is to covet. It's interesting that really the word for covet is in so many, is normally just that word is epithumia, just translated desire. And you can have really good desires. You can have really bad desires. But um, I, I, it's the law that makes me start judging those desires. He said, you shall, shall not cover it. Um, and, and now that, let me just say that if you ever, that I, once I, once I did this, so many things made sense to me, but if you read Romans seven verses seven through 16, and wherever you come across the word law, you subject, we substitute knowledge of good and evil, all sorts of kind of, of things make sense. So he's going to start asking questions now, like, um, is the law sin? Well, if you say, well, if you put it in the sense, is the knowledge of good and evil sin? No. In fact, the rest of scripture is going to talk about how we need to get knowledge. The problem is how we get the knowledge. So if you go back to that tree, that tree in the garden and the bride stand at the base of the tree, um, is, is Jesus on that tree sin? No, he's, he's holy. God planted that tree. The problem is, under temptation, what we do in our flesh when we try to obtain that that knowledge. So if you read through 7 through 16 and you substitute the word for law, you substitute tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think all sorts of things start to make sense out of that garden story that didn't make sense before. In the beginning of verse 7, the phrase is uh, honomos hamartia, you know, question mark, there is kind. There's an article, nom, nominative, masculine, sing, singular, honomos, hamartia. Yeah. So there is an article in that one. The second one, there's not an article, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. That sometimes there's an article in front of, in front of law, and sometimes there's not an article in yeah. front of law. And so I, I'm wondering sometimes. Okay. So is Paul really, when he said, if there's an article, is he always talking about the Jewish law, the law of Moses, and then when there's not an article, is he always just talking about, well, law in general? See, I, I think he's always talking about both, and he's doing little things like, so when he <laughs> says, what then shall we say, that the law of Moses is sin? Well, he says, by no means, no way, that the, that law came from God himself, and then he says, yet it have not been for law, 
and he and now he uses it in a general sense and i think he i i think he's pointing out subtly that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is is law and the perfect law is when god himself writes it on stone and hands it down to you but but that's interesting because law that's written on stone is a real problem in the old testament you remember all the prophets talking about how they have a heart of stone so god writes the law in their hearts but he's writing it on stone and then the prophecy he's going to take out that heart of stone and give them a, a heart of flesh um, well and it, it also seems here that paul he's using personal language like he's talking about himself but he also seems to be like you're saying functioning within this larger world of stories yeah yeah, I think that's a, I think that's such a great observation, and and it's it's true of the entire Old Testament. We have such an individualistic mindset, especially in modern America. But I was just reading back to Deuteronomy thirty, you know, the promises to Israel and what he'll do, and he'll he'll say things like, "I will bring you back," and you go, "Okay, that only makes sense if he's talking about people that are being brought back." 400 you know or thousands of years later and then ultimately only it makes sense about it a new creation and it only makes sense if he's talking as if they're all one um so yeah i think paul puts himself in the place of adam adam in place of himself humanity with the adam kind of in paul's mind the big point is getting to is hey we're all in this thing together and mm -hmm. we each have a unique part of it but you know, and that's why he can talk about Adam the way he does and use things interchangeably. I was thinking too, your story about germs, um, that you wouldn't, you know, I would not have known what germs were if I hadn't been, you know, told about it. But then once <laughs> I was told about it, it, I went through kind of a death, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so it's not bad. It's not bad to know you need, it's good to know about germs. Yeah. But when you were told about it, you received it in such a way that it nearly kills you. Right, right. Just but, the knowledge, it, yeah, just the it, knowledge of knowing about germs almost a, killed you. Yeah, I was a happy guy playing in the backyard with my trucks and the dirt and everything until <laughs> someone told me about germs. And then I couldn't enjoy my trucks in the backyard and worms and bugs and all this, all this stuff. And I, I when I was preaching the sermon, I had this great picture of my kids. It's just like my favorite picture you know, I'm a new dad kind of watching all this stuff. And it's John and Elizabeth. And John must have been about, he was two. And Elizabeth was like old, they were one year apart. She's one. And they're on the bathroom floor. And they got into Susan's makeup case. And, you know, and I caught them. There's toilet paper all over. They're playing with the makeup. And I snapped this picture the moment that I caught them. And Elizabeth who's one looks up at me like, yay, daddy, come join us. You know, she has no idea that what she's doing is wrong. And yet John looks up and you can just see the fear in his eyes. Like, oh no, we're busted. And I, and I, <laughs> and I said to him, well, what's the difference? Well, we all know the difference that John had learned that the law says you do not play in mom's makeup case. And he realized that. And, and so, and he kind of, he had kind of died at that, at that point. And, and I remember, every, you know, every parent I would think has vague memories of this, is that when the kids were really little 
and they were not they were really not self-conscious and so they were just they were just so hilarious everything they did was absolutely delightful but then there came a day when it was like someone held up a mirror to their face and i'd say that the mirror is the law and they began to judge themselves and then suddenly they didn't just dance and sing because they liked dancing and singing they danced and sang in order to get your approval and I remember that with each of my four kids, that when that time came, something in my heart sunk, like, oh, I'm going to miss them. You know, I'm going to miss this, like, free spirit that just lives life and enjoys everything. Now, that has to happen because of the development of a human being. And so the fall, I believe, God consigned all people to disobedience. That's what Paul's going to say in chapter 11. It had to happen. And, and God has a purpose for it. So no parent wants their child to remain one-year-old forever. Okay. I think sometimes that happens with someone that's mentally handicapped, and that's not bad, but, th but that person then misses out on something else. But, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think Paul, in Paul's mind, that, that, that's what he's thinking. He's going to be a little more explicit about it here in a few verses. All right, let's go on with verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Yeah, yeah. So great sentence. And, the, you know, in the Greek, there's no article in front of law there. But I, I, think, I think the picture is that sin, um, in terms of an incompleteness or something, was was in Adam in the garden story. There was something wrong before the fall happened. Adam didn't know that something was wrong. God knew that was something that was wrong. But when the law came in, it highlighted, it, it showed Adam what was wrong. And that was that uh, he had just he had, he had just taken the life of Jesus on the tree or he had taken the truth or he had taken righteousness to himself and suddenly realized that what he had he had done um, was wrong. So the commandment um, do do not do not desire what belongs to God, what's on the tree. Um, it, Adam's incompleteness, the fault in Adam, was then highlighted by the commandment because, and and it's it's so. It's so obvious in the story, and I, I'm always surprised that more people don't see this. But God, I don't think God blames Adam or humanity for sin the way we blame. Like God, it was wrong, but God knew that it would happen. He set the He set the whole thing up. So I've even talked to like kind of famous theologians about this, and they said, "Oh, well, Adam really knew that he shouldn't have taken from the tree." And I go, "No, that's just the point." He didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. So how would he know that it's wrong to take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if he didn't have the knowledge of good and evil? And once he takes it, at the end of the garden story, God says he has the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, he doesn't have it completely. He doesn't have it in the way that he wants. But but that the fault was always there, but it took on power once the law came in and we're still experiencing 
the power of the law. But, uh, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, apart from the law, sin lies dead. In, in other words, it, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't have, it, do, it takes on power once we give it power through the way we appropriate the law. In verse 8, this is another interesting example of where the first time he talks about sin, there's an article in front of it, which makes me want to think, but the sin. Yeah. And then yeah. that makes me want to think of the garden. Yeah. Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from law, no article, there's no article there. Yeah. Apart from law, oh. sin lies dead. Yeah. But in eight, I think there is, there is, yeah, there's an article in front of the sin. So he, he kind of keeps doing that, going back and forth. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, and yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, that's why I told the story about washing my hands is um, I didn't know about germs and I needed to learn about germs. You know what I mean? There was like I needed to learn um, if I'm playing in the backyard and there's a dog turd, don't play with it. Just, you know, go back to playing with your trucks and leave the turd alone. Um <laughs> All right, let's go to verse verse nine. This is a really interesting verse. Yeah, this is huge. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, this is in the NIV, sin sprang to life and I died. Yeah, I think that's pretty close. You know, there's an article in front of the sin, but the, but the huge, of course, the huge thing that's going on there that freaks out theologians is Paul's statement, I was once alive apart from the law, or apart from law. And, of course, this messes with the idea of original sin, as it was formulated by Augustine, because, um, you know, he would say that we all inherited inherited guilt. And, and that's kind of a foundational part of penal substitution or atonement theory as well. But they, I don't think scripture says we inherit guilt. In fact, it, and this is where the, the penal aspect of that comes in. In Ezekiel, he talks about, you know, the sins will, the sin, sons will not, um, sins, sons will not be punished for the iniquities of the father. So sons, sons, um, will, the, the, the iniquities of the fathers will be visited on the sons. And we all know that, right? So, if your dad is an alcoholic, well, that sucks for you. You're going to suffer the pain of that. So you, you will suffer because of your ancestors' sins, but their guilt is not placed on you. And, that, and that's what is, Ezekiel talks about. So, so the, the punishment for sin is death. So kind of the idea with the original sin is that you're born dead. Well, when Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, well, that means there was uh, there was once where he had not participated in the act of sin, or he had not given in to the sin had not come alive, as maybe the way he'd say it uh, before. So I think what Paul what Paul would argue is we don't inherit guilt; we inherit flesh. We inherit this body that has this problem in it, and that is that it's isolated and alone. And that's in every every kid inherits that problem they don't a little child is beautiful wonderful and alive but they really don't know what love is to learn what love is you have to grow up in a world of pain and suffering you have to learn about getting picked on at the bus stop and having to forgive the people that hurt you so 
and, and God's love is described as mercy, which is free love. To learn mercy, I have to go through a story of fall and redemption. And I think Paul is saying we're all a part of that story. But yes, I once was alive apart from the law. And, I, and Karl Barth would say he's speaking about kind of some state beyond linear time. And, and that might be true. But I tend to think Paul's just saying, yeah, every mom and dad knows that a little kid is so alive and then we slowly kill him. We send him off to school and they get grades and they become insecure and they go through all kinds of crap. And then hopefully one day they meet Jesus and um, he, set, he sets them free from that. Well, this is this is important to me because when I was growing up, I didn't I didn't really go to church. But every now and then, I kind of got the essence of the message given to me. Mm-hmm. And one time, when I was you know pretty little, um, somebody explained it to me. He says, "Okay, well, here's how it works. Everybody is born guilty and sinful, and so even before." You I mean you're just born that you're born guilty and sinful in the eyes of God? Yeah, and God is and out that, to punish you, right? Yeah, and so what you got to do is you got to find a way to get out from underneath that. And well, that whole scenario just seems so unfair and mean and cruel. And um, and why is God this way? Well, because God holds it against you for what your parents did before you, and from what their parents going all the way back yeah. to Adam. God's holding that all against us. Yeah, and, and he has some seems, weird need to punish things for the sake of yeah. punish him. And so he's holy, and he has to not just kill people, but he has to torture them forever and ever and ever. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's so that's like an insanity. Yeah. <laughs> but when, what this is saying is there was a sort of this time that Paul was talking about, and, and again, when he says I, I don't think that Paul is thinking of himself as this singular dot, but as us, as, as a part of us or as a part of mm-hmm. humanity. Uh, that I had this life, this this life where I was guiltless. I was, I I, there, I didn't know about law. I couldn't be guilty because, in so to me that speaks of an original innocence, an original goodness that is not not just Paul's inheritance, but all of our inheritance that yeah. we were once alive in this beautiful state, like you're talking about your little kids, that we as humanity are being recapitulated. And so that once we as humanity were all alive in this state, we were all these little kids at one yeah. point. And in this capitulation, well, of course, then we're going to have to go through all the stages of growth. And yeah, and I would and I would say um, we were alive, but I don't know if the word we, we, the word good is a challenging word. The the thing that was that that is the problem with a little child is they don't know what the good is so they can't choose it and see now that's that's fascinating because that gets back to what is free will and and, you know i think this is where a a calvinist paradigm helps you with the garden story even though of course i don't believe in limited atonement that well that that a, a little child can't freely choose the good so they really don't have what we mean by free will normally they can't freely choose the good because they don't know what it is but they are good. They're the creation of God. So every person is born entirely valuable to God. The breath of God is in them. And he's, and there's this beauty in them that that is absolutely sacred. But do they need to grow up? Yes. 
<laughs> so <laughs> we're all born, we're all born, um, not grown up. I think that's that's what he's saying. And yeah, that picture that I have of my two kids in the in the bathroom when they got busted is the 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 picture that I go. Yeah, I, Elizabeth was still alive apart from the law, smiling at me, saying, "Come join the party, Daddy." And and John <laughs> and John knew the law, and he's wanting to hide, and that's that's Im- important because that's exactly then you know. The, so Paul and or Adam and Eve, they're messed up before they ever ate from the tree, but they didn't know it. They're just fine. They're like a little kid playing in the garden. Once they eat from the tree, they hide from they hide from their father. And the bride hides from her groom. And the very thing she hides is her shame, which is remarkably, <laughs> you could get graphic here, but that's where the seed goes. And and what would look like death and decay turns into a baby. That's all. So the gospel is so written into our, into our bodies. It, it's I think Paul is talking about something that everybody everywhere knows on this like gut level, even if they can't put words on it. All right, verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Yeah, yeah. So you go back to that tree. So the the very the very commandment, um, there's this great, great verse that nobody talks about in John 12, where Jesus says, I know that the Father's commandment is eternal life. And so, you know, if I if I say to you, you must live, David, and um, you say, how do I do that? And then I say, well, okay, you need to go to church. You need to tithe. You need to go to the Bible study. Hey, and you really need to mean it. And if you even think, a th- uh, if you even have a lustful, desirous thought toward a woman in bikini, well, you've committed adultery with her. And well, you you go down that path. And and yeah, that 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 commandment, live, will kill you. But if I say, but if, so if I give the commandment as a law, it kills you. But if you hear the commandment as a prophecy or a word, a promise from this future, it brings life. So when you think of the, when Jesus said, um, you know, they said, what's the greatest law? And he said, well, you will love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. The second is like it. It's interesting that in the Greek, and I think there's also really, fairly true in Hebrew, though Hebrew is more, a little more confusing. But Jesus doesn't use the imperative tense. He doesn't say you should love the Lord your God. He just says you will love the Lord your God. Now, this is the, the voice of the creator speaking. And that's the huge mystery in scripture, you know, and in the creation story is, okay, if God talks, things happen. How can, how could God talk and this thing talk back to him, which is you and I? Um, so if I, if I listen to the word of God and think it's something I have to fulfill, well, I start to kill myself. But if I trust that God is fulfilling it, then it, it's life. And the life is the fruit that Paul was talking about, but it's also the new me. I can begin to live as that little kid once again. Uh, you know, you talked about the uh, the five stories, you know, that are kind of behind this. And I think there's another story, which is that in Paul is running the church in Rome, and there's people in Rome that are trying to create kind of a a law a law based gospel, and and Paul is trying to defeat that. Yeah, and so I think this is kind of 
uh, a warning. Jonathan Mitchell put this in his commentary, and I liked it. And he said, we need to re- remember here that Paul's opponents in Rome were trying to bring the law back into the into the, into the community. And so Paul knows how dangerous this is. Oh, absolutely. If, if you turn this Jesus community into a legalistic community, you will find that that is going to bring death. And then the irony of that is that's exactly what we do. Yes. We, we make the Jesus community into a legalistic community, which then brings death. Yes. Well, instead of life. When, when, if we get to um, chapter nine, Bart, Karl Barth has the most incredible section in his commentary on that. And he just, he just points out very clearly, and I think this is true, that when Paul starts talking about Israel, he's talking about his church. So, and when Paul starts talking about the law, he's not just talking about Jewish law, he's talking about all law. So what you just said, I think is absolutely true. And it's a huge story in a way we've utterly missed Romans. And it's not simply, I think, that there were people in Rome trying to do this. Paul is saying, we all try to do this all the time. It's called our ego. It's called our pride. So as we get further on here, you'll see that Paul is... Paul is not saying, oh, this is a problem that I got over. He's saying, this is a problem that I live with every day. I have to cut it. So, well, this is one of the primary things I, I struggled with and never actually figured out in all my years of ministry was you get into church communities. Well, then church communities have to start figuring out who can do what. Yeah. We can come up this? with can a new. Do- can you do this? Can, who, what, okay, in order to join, in order to be this, in order to be that, in order to be this. And then so you start you start judging. Yeah. And then it becomes this sort of hypocritical judging community trying to figure out who's worthy to do the different jobs, yeah. to do the different jobs in the church. And then that just makes everything start to collapse in on itself. Yeah. And it's, it's important to just note, Paul's not you know, the word antinomian. He's not against the law, but it's how we relate to the law that's important. So, you know, the way I tell people is like, well, gosh, if if you look at the law and the, if you're murdering your neighbor, <laughs> the law says stop murdering people. Well, okay, what do you do at that point? How do you, how do you change? Well, you don't change by simply judging yourself and judging everyone around you. So what the law, the law has a purpose and the purpose of the law is to tell you, you're dead. <laughs> you need a savior. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to go back to that tree and submit to the righteousness of God. That's that's called confession. And it's called repentance and confession and the assurance of pardon. So th- there are theological concepts that we then turn into laws. So <laughs> we, we've all, we're always turning these deep existential relational yeah. things into laws and then judging each other. And you remember how Paul started in Romans. He went through all these sins and then in chapter two, verse one, and it's not that it's not that the sins weren't sins, but in chapter two, verse one, he says, therefore you are without excuse, O man, for in judging another, you practice the very same thing. In other words, the root of all this evil is how you relate to that tree in the garden. So the law tells you you're dead but now you're what what needs to happen well you need a you need a savior well that's the and that's to me the whole challenge of a church community is how can we live together in non-legalistic communities where where we have to make judgments yeah that's well, 
it, that's really hard. Well, I think a, the perfect example, or I shouldn't say nothing's perfect in this world, but a really, really great example of that is called Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, you go the first, look at just the first few steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's a fellowship built on an admission that you're um, that you are helpless and that you're a sinner, and that apart from grace, you you would utterly be destroyed. And then you talk about it, and lo and behold, I mean, I took a class on on alcoholism. I remember in seminary, and I'm, I've heard this different places, but by far and large, the most helpful, if you call it a program for defeating alcoholism is AA. And and you go, well, what is that? Well, it's a bunch of sinners getting together, confessing their sins, and then encouraging each other to believe the grace of God. So isn't it ironic that it's, it's it's not a group where you go and you shame each other. It's a group where you go and you confess your sins and you believe mercy, and then that mercy bears fruit which is uh, people that are able to, to break the bondage of alcoholism. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're doing a good job in your church about that in, in that you're really resisting this. You know, I'm, I'm not here to judge everybody. I fall under this judgment myself. We, we you know, we, yeah. And so trying to make it in, into this kind of, okay, let's, let's. Yeah. Let's yeah. That's a, going. that's a huge long topic. That's fascinating, <laughs> but interesting. To All talk right. About. All right, verse 11, for the sin, oh, there's no article there in the NIV. Okay, for sin. Well, and the funny the, thing is, in, in the Greek, there is an article. Right, yeah. Yeah, I was, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm reading the NIV so that yeah, then we can right. talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, so for, in the NIV, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a picture of what happened in the garden for the sin. And remember, the temptation was take knowledge of good and evil and make yourself in the image of God. When God had already said to Adam and Eve, I will make you in my own image. And and you can say, well, maybe even said I have made you in my own image. If, But that has to do with how you understand chapter one and chapter two, but also the nature of time and eternity. But but the sin, the sin of their incompleteness or isolation comes alive with the commandment because it says now you need to be fruitful. Now you need to live. Now you need to be righteous. And because they only can think of themselves because they're trapped within themselves, they don't understand that their helper is right there with them. So it's like saying to a it's like saying to a young woman, you need to have a baby. And how is she going to do that? She, she doesn't know yet. And um, well, the, the, the gospel, the Bible is this giant romance. <laughs> I call it the romance of God. And it involves a covenant, involves sexuality. And the reason God cares so much about sexuality is this, it's, it's this amazing picture of the communion, which we're all destined for. So people get hung up on the sign and don't necessarily see what it's pointing to. But now, okay, now I'm going off on other topics. So, okay. Sorry. All right. Ver- yeah. Verse 12. Mm-hmm. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Yeah. That's so important. That knowledge of good and evil is not bad. It's what you do with it. That's bad. Um, so I, you know, I like to think of it this way. The law is a description of Jesus and Jesus is Jesus. 
Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Yeah. So the so this so let me read it. Let's try it this way. Did that which is the good, the article is there, then bring death to me? No way. It was the sin, taking the knowledge of good and evil to justify myself, working death in me through what is the good. The, the knowledge of good and evil isn't bad, but what I do with it is bad in order that the sin might be shown to be sin. So what God, I think what he's saying there is God set this all up because something was wrong with Adam in the very beginning, and that was that Adam was alone. And part of learning to love is then going through this story of fall and redemption. So the tree isn't the tree isn't bad. It's the way we relate to the tree that's bad. And, and this isn't through the commandment, but it becomes sinful beyond measure. And, and now I think this is totally fascinating, is that... Um, the Bible talks about the judgment as God delivering us up to our sins and our desires. And um, remember, Paul also talked about the creation of this tupas, this empty self, the imprint of the ultimate Adam. But that imprint is created with the knowledge of that ultimate Adam, but not the presence of that ultimate Adam. So when I sin, I have a knowledge of the truth, and yet I violate the truth because the truth is not alive in me. And when I do that, I experience the darkness of a lie and something in me yearns for the truth. But I have to come to the realization that the truth is not something I possess. The truth is something that I must um, submit to. So remember he said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So it's so cool, I think, in Paul and in Romans, he's saying, yeah, all this bad stuff's happening, but God has a purpose for it. So where's sin increased, grace about a little more. How do you make an Apostle Paul? Well, the Apostle Paul has to participate in, in sin in this horrific way, and then God does something with it. Now, now, that's a terrible idea if that's only true for Paul. But Paul is saying it's true for absolutely everyone. We all sin against each other in different ways. And it's all evil. It's all terribly evil. But God somehow has a has a purpose for it. So um, when you look at the Old Testament, it's fascinating how God plans out sin. And he says, this is 400 years from now, the, what is it, um, the, the Ammonites, their sin is not complete. It will be completed. At that time, I will bring Israel into the Holy Land. But God has, God kind of has this whole thing mapped out. It's fascinating. Well, the, the, when I just tried to simplify it, the, just, the sin used the good law to accomplish bad things so that we could see that the sin was bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. Yeah. Okay, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Yeah, and that goes back to stuff he was saying in chapter 6 about you can be the slave of 
the sin or unrighteousness or the devil, or you can be the slave of, of Jesus. And that the, the law is spiritual, that that tree is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. I'm stuck on myself. And so what happened? I sold myself. I sold myself to the evil one. I, I, I became captive to his lie. The NIV says, you know, the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. I think the literal Greek is more that the... Oh, is that what the, it says? The, I wasn't listening. Yeah, the, 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 the NIV oh, yeah. says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. But the Greek... Yeah, that's bad. Uh, that's a terrible translation. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, so, so that the, the, the law is pneumaticos, spiritual... But mm -hmm. I, however, am sarkic, um, yeah, uh, sarkinos. I yeah. am fleshly. Yeah. So the way the way that ESV translates, I am of the flesh. Having been, it's not sold, but having been sold under sin, and I, and I'm like, okay, yeah. There's a spirit in me called the breath of God, but when I believe the evil one, I start to justify myself. And that's now this is really important because this has come up later in the chapter. That spirit, that breath of God gets trapped within me um, in the depths of my being. And this is so I think this is so cool. But I think really, Paul, when he said that we are the, the temple of, the, of God, he's talking about all of humanity. But he's also talking about us individually. And if you think of a person as the temple in the depths of the temple there was this place the holy of holies and in the holy of holies it was like eternal it was of the age there was like a space-time barrier going into mm -hmm. the holy of holies and god's presence was in the holy of holies and yet the holy of holies is in this giant stone box that god never really wanted he always talked about wanting to live in a tent and you go oh that's like me with all my works, hum humans build this stone temple around this thing that God really builds, which is the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets and where the Shekinah glory appears. But it's trapped within this giant stone temple. And so when he says, um, I am of the flesh, sold under the sin, I think he's alluding to this, this idea that, yeah, this the Spirit of God gets trapped in this body of sin and death, which is which is me, and good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil isn't bad. It's 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 the thing that this me did with it. So that, but that's saying the same thing again. But yeah, that yeah, let's, boy, that's a bad translation. I think. <laughs> um, All right, let's keep. We'll, we can because yeah. this is we're going to come back around to this some more. Yeah, sorry. Verse fifteen. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now there you go. So that was the conversation that we, that we just had. So this is, this has to do with some things we talked about before, but I, I think if you think of your, your spirit as your I, that when I say I am, it's, it's consciousness. And then the me or the psyche is the, is that reality that I construct or that I, I live in. Um, I think uh, Paul's saying, well, I'm somehow in the wrong psyche because I'm doing what I don't want. I'm doing the very thing that I hate. And that's the weird thing about humanity. We're all divided. The moment I, and this is, and this goes back to that tree thing. The moment I say I should, 
I just divided myself, right? Between I'm going, there's a battle going on within me that I, that I don't understand. And w w so we can talk about that more in a minute, but yeah, that is such a fascinating line. And when I should say this too, David is, but you know, this, there are elements, especially among Protestants that they just hate this verse. And they say, well, that can't be true. Um, that Paul has to be talking about before he was a Christian. Um, but this is all present tense. And I think Paul is very much talking about the battle that we are all in. The moment I say I should, I'm admitting to these things that Paul is saying right here. Yeah, and I think that's important because if people can get really discouraged, if they think, oh my gosh, this was supposed to have happened to me all at once. Yeah. And then when they discover sort of a lifelong journey where they're struggling with this, they can feel like, oh, something's wrong with me. Well, actually, you're you're becoming more sensitive and aware of, of the process. Yeah. And yeah. it's a it's, it's kind of it's a, it's a it's a gradual it's a gradual thing. OK, verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, and people will say, well, yeah, but I also, I want to sin. And they go, yeah, right. You're divided. You, so you sit in church and you think, yeah, I, I should never lust again. So then you make promises that you're never going to lust again. And then you go out and what happens? You begin to lust. But what, but what's going on? Well, you're living in this body of sin and death that Paul is going to talk about. You're living in an isolated body of flesh. And so you, you have a tendency to look at a woman and think of only consuming her, not communing with her. Uh, and so it's not, that, it's not that sexuality is bad. It's that there's a tendency in you to only think of your own pleasure and your own pain. The beautiful thing about marriage and the beautiful thing about one body is it's not that you don't experience pleasure, but you you begin to realize, oh, I don't think about only my own pleasure. And that's the that's kind of the miracle of sexual communion and why God cares about it so much is that you begin to come out of the isolation, which is yourself. But um, I, or you maybe there are other examples like you you, you tell yourself, well, I'm not going to lie or I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to take from other people. I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. But your flesh says, I matter more than the people around me. <laughs> so you're in a battle with that. If you were my, my thumb never has that inner dialogue because it, it's happy with what is good for my finger and my finger, if they were each individually conscious. So yeah, that, I th that's acknowledging the fact that, but, and so put it this way. What what is the law describing? The law is describing life in one body, one new humanity where everybody loves each other. And I have a knowledge of that that I gained from. Well, I gain it in an objective way from the tree as a law, but I also have a knowledge from it in that the spirit of Jesus is somehow now dwelling inside of me. And when I am in communion with that spirit, this idea comes into my head, hey, wouldn't it be great if everybody loved each other? But then I get out into the world and I find my individual body in contempt, cont um, competition with those around me 
and the battle rages. Which psyche am I going to live in? Um, and I think that's what Paul is going to keep talking about. All right, verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Yeah. Right. So, and, and I think this is the idea. This I think this goes to what Jesus says. Um, and that, that is that, you, you know, you must lose your psyche to find it. Well, who is he talking to? Well, that's that I, that, that. So your consciousness can exist in one of two psyches, um, the psyche of God or the psyche of the world. And the psyche of the world is tied into these bodies of ours, these bodies of sin and death. So I have, uh, like you mentioned, I have the, like we said at the start, I have a physical body just focused on itself. And I have a psychicos body that's also just focused on itself. When I gain the psyche of Jesus, I'm gaining the psyche of the head, and that's a different psyche. All right, verse 18. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Yeah, so the, the way the ESV has it, for I know that nothing good dwells in me and then he clarifies what me he's talking about that is my flesh and that goes back to that psychicist body and the physical body for i have the desire to do the good in other words there's something in me that says yeah wouldn't it be great if i actually loved everybody the way god loves me but not the ability to carry it out and why don't i have the ability to carry it out because i get stuck in me the moment I take it as a law and say, I have to love or else, well, I start competing with my neighbor. I get stuck in myself and the law traps me. I think the important thing here is to, is to I was going to say, flesh it out, flesh out this. <laughs> but this is kind of what we need to do, literally. Mm -hmm. That um, the problem is, is that there is something that is evil that is dwelling in my flesh. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then Jonathan Mitchell in his commentary says there was an ancient, an ancient um, uh, commentator named Ambrosiaster who made the comment that Paul does not say the flesh is evil as some think, but that what dwells in the flesh is not good. Yeah. So, and and it keep that's an important thing for me to keep you know that because you could really get into a lot of self hatred. Yeah. Well, well, the the thing that dwells in the flesh is the lie. So Adam has the flesh before he encounters the serpent, right? And he doesn't really have the ability to defend himself against the serpent because he doesn't know that the serpent is bad and God is good. But it's when the serpent speaks the lie, and the lie is is that somehow God is not good. You can't trust him. So and then the, once that starts to dwell in the flesh, uh -huh, then that's yeah. when you've got the problem. Right, right. And, and, and it takes the form of, like, if I, if I can't trust God to make me good, then I have to make myself good. And you see how that fits into religion. Then the religious institution comes along and says, yeah, you do have to make yourself good. And here's some more knowledge of good and evil, which is a, a little bit, yeah, a little bit shocking. But you're, you're right in that that original thing God creates is good. It's the lie that infects it that 
it turns it evil. And, um, you know, and, and a great chapter to read after you think through this is 1 Corinthians 15, because he'll talk about the flesh and he'll talk about the human flesh is like a seed and that it's sown. And the seed's not bad, but it has to die in order to live, has to go through a transformation. Well, and this was, in, you know, because you could read a verse like this or it could be used and it was used for me to sort of be, the message that I was getting from Christianity was that you are evil, that there is nothing in you that is any good. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just, yeah. that's really, yeah. <laughs> and it makes sense. Okay. Well, and I, I guess I think of it this way. I tell people, um, well, it's like, in order to, to be evil, you have to be good. <laughs> there has to be something, you know, and then it gets in, you get in some weird philosophical say, conversation about what Satan is or isn't. But this is the way I think of it, is that, well, it's more evil to crash a brand new BMW than it is an old, you know, an an old Chevy or something. So what are we each like? We're like incredibly valuable, but, but we've been through something of a car crash and, but we're so valuable, but God has to, God has to re, God is going to redeem it. And that's all part of, of making us in his image. All right. Verse 19. Yeah. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do this. I keep on doing. Yeah, so I keep washing my hands, even though they say, stop that, Peter. <laughs> um, I keep, I try not to drink. I just end up drinking more because I feel bad about how much I'm drinking. Trying not to focus on myself. If I say to myself, Peter, sin is focused. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop, gosh, you keep thinking about yourself. Would you stop thinking about yourself? Um, <laughs> I think that's that's what Paul is saying. It's that, as that, that sin cycle that we're all very familiar with. All right, verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Yeah. So when you talked about that, it's your flesh, like I'm trapped in this body of, of sin and death. Well, and what I'm getting, uh, this is an important kind of distinction to make that the, that the sin is not part of the created essence of humanity, the sin is part of the corrupted predicament of humanity from which we must be delivered. And so that, when I think yeah. about it that way, it, it helps me. Yeah. So I, yeah, that, I mean, that, that, there's where I suppose there's all sorts of pondering and wondering, but, but the picture that works for me is that, because well, he already said in chapter five, sin was, how does he put it? He says sin was already in the world before the law. So in other words, sin was already there before the law came in. And you could say, well, that maybe that's a snake. Maybe that's all sorts of things. I think you can talk about it though. Like it was this incompleteness in, in Adam. Um, so, and then, and then it comes to life. It takes on power once the lie enters in, but then, you know, and sin can be defined differently, but, but for me, the picture that works is that, well, when my children were one year old, they were incomplete. <laughs> and but I didn't I didn't blame them for it. I didn't say they were bad. They were the most valuable thing to me in the whole world. 
but I didn't want them to remain one year old. I mean, I look at Elizabeth on the floor looking up the camera. She's so cute, you know, but I knew she'd have to grow up. I knew she'd have to learn that she can't play with mom's makeup case. I knew that when she was 35, if she broke into women's bathrooms and played with her makeup case, that would cause her problems. And and she would never, <laughs> she would never become, you know, that, that we were just at the start of the, sort of the journey. So in that sense, the incompleteness d dwelt in her, but it was, it was by design. So, you, you know, one of my contentions, David, is that the thing that's happening in this world of space and time is God is allowing us to witness our own creation so that we would know he is the creator. And so if, if you define sin as an incompleteness, I go, well, yeah, we were created incomplete. We're not done yet. So we're still in the process of creation. If you define sin as something that is is evil, I go well. We didn't we didn't commit evil and, until the lie entered in and empowered the incompleteness to 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 more incompleteness. Maybe is the way to say it. All right, verse twenty one. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Yeah. So the the. Literally, what Paul writes, a more literal translation is, and I think this is so cool. So then I find the law. Um, when I want to do the good, evil lies close at hand. I just like that because, um, so whenever I want to do right, he's going, oh, suddenly I find myself back at that tree in the garden <laughs> trying to figure well, out how am well, I going to be fruitful? <laughs> Well, you know, there is something positive in here, and there's something very positive in the next verse that was going to build on this. But Paul says, I want to do good. Yeah. He mm -hmm. says, we, and, you know, and if I'm taking that as not just Paul, but thinking of the larger story, is we want to do good. Yeah. And I think that's a it just, we shouldn't just skip over that. Right. Evil might be right there, but we want, that's what we want. Yeah. Well, and, and I then, think... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Because the next verse is, is going to be the next really verse profound. Is a, the next verse is a total miracle. The next verse is the <laughs> miracle that all of the book of Romans is about. And it's shocking when you kind of get into it, I think. All right. So verse 22, for in yeah. my inner being, I delight in God's law. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the, it, it's even more, I think this, when I got into the Greek just a little bit, and I'm no Greeks, anybody can do this. You can go online and just use an interlinear and investigate the words and you'll discover, whoa, I see why they just translated it this way. But when you get into some of these words, they're incredible. So when he writes, for I delight, the, the word that, um, and, and how does the NIV say it? For I delight. Okay, or, so or, it's, um, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Yeah, so it uses the word delight too. Well, that word delight is not a normal word for delight. It's this fascinating Greek word, uh, sunedomai, which is constructed out of two other words. So soon is the prefix, which means with, and hedone means pleasure. Now, that's kind of funny because that's where we get our word hedonism. So um, Paul is saying, for I have pleasure with, which is fascinating because you're going, you have pleasure with who, Paul? And then he says, um, I have, and, and what do you have pleasure in? I have pleasure in with, I have pleasure with someone in the law of God in my inner being. And 
this is where I think it gets so uh, profound. He's saying, I like the good in my inner being. And if you say, well, what's in your inner being? I go, well, if you think of the, the, the entire Old Testament, this is, and this is, this is the sermon I preached on Easter. And so maybe I can just describe it to you a little bit. But I did it in character as the Apostle Paul. And I brought the backpacking tent that I used to go backpacking with my dad. And, and so this gets me emotional. But um, And I talked about, and I set it up in the middle of our big old stone church. And I talked about how when I was a kid, I, you know, I just was insecure and I get picked on by the kids at the youth group. I didn't like myself. I was always self-conscious, but we go backpacking up in the mountains and when we crawl into the tent, my dad would just, um, he would just hug me and he'd tell me stories about his life and he'd make it clear that I was the most important thing in his stories. And when he would do that, I would, I would forget about me. And, um, and then I would discover me. And I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be me. I was just me. And the point I was trying to make is that in the depths of your soul, and, and we know this for a Christian, and I, th I think this is true for an unbeliever too, and, and I'll explain what happens when a person becomes a believer. But in the depths of your soul, there's a tent and the spirit of your father is there. And when you go into that tent, you're going into the Holy of Holies, like in this in the sanctuary. And in the Holy of Holies, you're no longer living in space and time the way we experience space and time. You're living in reality. And the reality is that God has made you in his own image and he delights in you. And there's nothing you can do to justify yourself. So to put it in theological language, when I enter into that inner tent, I realize that I am justified. And once I realize that I'm justified, I don't have to justify myself. So another way to say that is my ego dies and I enter into a new psyche. And so I think what Paul is saying is that the I, my consciousness, can exist inside that inner tent. And that's kind of what the whole book of Hebrews about is entering the throne room of grace boldly or my eye, my consciousness can exist in my flesh. And now Paul's going to talk about this in chapter eight. If my consciousness, if the eye is existing in my flesh outside that inner tent, well, death enters into my world. Everything begins to die. But if I commune in that inner tent and I live in the now with the spirit of my father, and I begin to bear fruit. I love, joy, peace, patience. All these things begin to show up in, 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 in my life. And and what am I doing? I'm, I'm delighting in, in the fact that God has justified me. I'm delighting in love. I'm delighting in truth. I'm I'm not I'm not trying to be. I'm not trying to be God. I'm delighting in God. And and in that place, God reveals to me that I am his image and um, and, and then I, I live for, I live by grace. So I think that's what it means to to live in the newness of, of life. So he talked about the, the newness and it's from that tent. The uh, one of the things I like to do sometimes is try to put things in my own words. And uh, so 
in my own, here's what I got for verse 22. As a human being, I am in my essence a child of God indwelled with a Godward orientation, which produces happiness for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I'm not just a blank slate trying to look for happiness. I am a child of God who is, I'm indwelled with a Godward orientation. I'm created for happiness in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to go through a lot of stuff to, to really get that in a mature way, and I stumble my way towards that. But what I, what I say to myself when I, sometimes I get frustrated is, okay, I know this is who I am. I'm just getting there. And mm-hmm. God is not going to fail to get me there. But each step that I take with God towards really being there in the moment all the time is a better step and more yeah. fun and more yeah. pleasurable and more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. So the law functions in the sense that the law that you're that the law says, don't be anxious, um, don't covet, uh, don't, you know, always love. And so you you live in the world and you think, well, I'm 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 stressed out. I'm anxious. I'm not being kind to the people around me. So what what do I do at that point? I think what Paul is saying, well, don't simply try harder. That will only make it worse. Go into the inner tent, enter in. Um, sit with, you know, and I think how this practically looks sometimes is is people have all kinds of different words for it. And the moment you turn it into a law, it dies. But but for me, a lot of the times it's just, well, just picturing myself crawling into that tent and my heavenly father holding me or just sitting on a beach with him. And I don't have to say anything. It's sometimes I just picture myself putting my head on his on his chest at the last supper um but i'm i'm just become conscious that god is with me and and when i enter into that consciousness you know that this is fascinating i think i'm entering i'm literally entering into the body of christ now this is utterly amazing because in the book of hebrews when it talks about the fact that we've entered the tent through the torn curtain and the tent is the very is the body of Christ. And so what happened when Jesus lifted his head on the cross and you know cried, Father, forgive them, and into your hands I commit my spirit, and it is finished. The curtain in the temple separating the inner sanctuary from the outer parts of the temple, it ripped from the top to the bottom. Well, I think that's a picture of what happens when I believe the gospel that God loves me is that curtain separating me from my deepest self, my innermost self rips. And I enter into communion through, through faith. Jesus does all of, does all of this. And I can begin to live. I begin to live from that place. But now, like you said, story is not over. You could think of it almost as like, well, the, that inner that seed is be, is just impregnated with the word, and something is beginning to in this old body of sin and death. Something is beginning to grow, and that's where Paul Paul's conversation about the old man and the new man becomes so fascinating. That within that tupas that we talked about, that empty space, the imprint within that old Adam, within that false self, within that bad psyche that I have created, within the weak the ego that I have manufactured, 
um, within the shadow, a uh, light begins to shine. Um, uh, a baby begins to grow. So you, you, the picture I think Paul has is that like this world and this old self is almost like a womb. And in this old womb of, of sin and death, something's growing. And it's, and it's not, and now this is where it really gets mind boggling. It's not just me. It's Jesus. So I think one of the most fascinating verses in all of scripture is when, and, and Paul says it in like an offhand comment about um, sleeping with prostitutes in 1 Corinthians. He says, do, do you not, if you, you become, when you have sex with a prostitute, he says you become one body with her. But he says, but then he says, but don't you realize we become one spirit with the Lord? Now that is utterly fascinating because that means that when he says, I delight with I delight with someone in the law in my inner being. It means that I get to this place where I really am trying to figure out who am I. Somehow I'm Jesus and I'm also me. And I think that's the shocking revelation in, in the New Testament is, yes, you. it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. So Paul says that to the Galatians. He goes, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, this old stone temple, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. In other words, I think Paul is saying faith in me, hope in me, love in me, all that fruit in me. Well, it's actually Jesus growing in me. And who am me? Well, I guess I'm somehow not me, but I'm Jesus. And that's this amazing mystery of of kind of who we are and exactly who we are according to the God according to first John we don't know yet he says who will become we don't know yet but we know that we will be like him so back to all that body stuff when Paul says that we're the body of Christ he he really means it uh, it's a bit shocking I was reading a book by John Ortberg I can't remember which one it was but he was talking about I think he was taking a yoga class and it's all about stretching and everything. Mm -hmm. And the um, and the yoga instructor said, instructed him to try softer instead of try harder. Mm -hmm. Try softer. Yeah. And that's yeah, kind of what this this is this kind of says to me. You know, you're if you struggle with this, you're not going to be able to do it. But if you can relax into it, mm -hmm. yep. You know, exactly. it's going to happen. So kind of relax. You get, you got to relax your way into this. And so what? that's kind of, to me, that's a kind of a beautiful image. Yeah. And the whole, I mean, those pictures show up throughout the all of scripture. Um, so the idea of Sabbath, you know, that the, that the commandment that God was so big on is just stop, just stop, just rest. And yeah, the metaphors are all over the place. But, the, you know, the concept that's in the Orthodox Church that the, I think the Protestant Church and probably the Roman Catholic Church have kind of lost here is that, and this was in the Church Fathers, uh, gosh, you can find quotes, but I think Irenaeus, all sorts of them, people said this, that um, God became man in order that men might somehow become God. And that's the Orthodox concept of theosis, that we're all being deified and which is really fascinating when you get to the topic of free will, that there, there really is only one will that could ultimately be free of everything else, and that's God's will. So when I begin to do this, when I go into that inner tent and I get into communion with Jesus, 
um, that's when I begin to experience the freedom of God. And I think ultimately where God is taking all of us is that we really will be able to look at a mountain and say, go over there, look at what it, because we will be in communion with the will of the creator, which is just wild, mind boggling stuff. So the things that God has for us are so far beyond even our own wildest hopes. And I, and I think I think Paul in his visions, when he talked about being caught up into the third heaven, he's seen this. And so th these aren't simply poetic, nice metaphors. He he believes it. All right, Peter, we're headed towards the finish line. Just yeah, three more okay. verses to go. Yeah. Okay, sorry. here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 23. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Yeah, right. That, I think that's everything that we said. I'd just like to note that that Paul talks about, we're talking about all these laws that are at work, are there at work but he does notice, he, he does say that there is something called the law of my mind, in the Greek, the noose. So there is, I have this law. There is a law in my mind, which is to delight in the good, mm -hmm. is to delight in God. So, to me, this is very positive. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. There is this law of my noose, my inner being, that is to delight in the mm -hmm. good. Yeah, I just think that's really that's yeah, and, that's and, important to see here. And the you know the debate among theologians is whether that's true for non Christians as well as Christians. I think that it is true for for non-believers or if you whatever that means i think everybody believes at some level but i do think that something really profound happens when a person comes to to faith through jesus christ and that is that curtain rips and they enter into the inner sanctuary and the inner sanctuary begins to enter into the outside the outer courts of of the temple and so th so that they delight so a, a person is separated from themselves until they come to trust that God is salvation, because that's what the name Jesus means. I don't think a person even has to know, particularly that English word Jesus, but they, but that something happens when we come to faith that God is our creator and he's redeeming us, that we begin to, you could say, we begin to live from the center. So even, yeah. I think even in other cultures, people talk about this even if they don't know the dynamics of what where it's exhibited on with Jesus on the cross so Jesus is absolutely central to this whole thing because Jesus is the one that it's his it's he it's entering into his life is entering into that inner place yeah so, well, we're not we're not discovering something that wasn't there yeah we're just yeah. we're discovering something that was there but in our innocence, we couldn't choose it because we didn't know about it. Yeah. But then, then we we exit our innocence, and then we we have all these other experiences. And then, wait a second, we discover through process that wait a second, I do have this inner being that delights in the good because I try to be happy in the sin, and I can't be happy in it. Yeah. And so I discover this law that is at work that in my innermost being I do delight in this. I there yeah, is a law of my mind. To me, that yeah. was really that was really yeah. helpful. That's I'm a human. Trying, that's a human condition. Yeah. Right. I'm not trying to be who I'm not. I'm trying to be who I am. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But sometimes this can be a difficult. <laughs> this can, yeah. Even though well, you I, can get the idea, it's it's still difficult to live it out. 
so well, I think that's, right yeah, I think that's because we're all trapped in these body. I'm still trapped in this body of flesh, and I think it's also because I live in a world of lies. The evil one's still lying to us every day, and to make it worse, I think the church has bought into a lot of the lies. So the pictures behind what we're reading aren't the same as the the, the ones that are in Paul's mind. To, so yeah, right. so let's let's keep going. <laughs> all right, verse twenty four. What a yeah. wretched man I am! Who will rescue me? from this body that is subject to death. Yeah. Yeah. I just love this verse because now all of a sudden we're back at the cross. And um, I, I think when, when he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, he's, he's not, he's not saying that there's nothing good in me. He's saying that I've got this wretched problem. I'm just so sick of myself trying to be good and I can't be good. And um, what am I, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And, now, this is a huge topic that gets into the atonement, but I think the thing that happens at the cross is so profound and so beautiful and so beyond all of our little formulas that we can kind of only begin to see it. But Paul talks as if something really dies at the cross, that the the thing that is destroyed is that old me, that somehow on the, that, that Jesus, Jesus enters into to me and he takes me back to the tree and we die together. But this is and this is the crazy thing to me. The church has taught people to run away from the judgment of God, but the judgment of God is to deliver you from yourself, your sin, which is that old body of sin that believes the lie. When we come to the cross, we see that all the efforts of our self-righteousness have produced the death of the creator, the death of the one who is good. And there, so at the tree, we realize that all our efforts of righteousness really only crucify the Messiah. And yet in the very place where we crucify him, he cries out, uh, Father, forgive them. He delivers up his spirit. That's the spirit that enters into us. And now we're at the edge of time and eternity. What I'm saying is that the cross reveals the nature of, of my sin. And yet also at the cross, what I take is now suddenly given that God gives me his spirit. I learn what at the cross, I learn what the good is. So because there are so many pictures that you can use or that, that at the cross, the bride discovers that she crucified the groom. The groom forgives her and she no longer takes him as an object. She now surrenders to him in faith. And even that is a gift of his spirit. And she's she's begins to be impregnated with this life. But what is he delivering me from? He's delivering me from the lie that I can justify myself. And he's um, creating within me faith that I have been justified. And, and at the most basic level, the cross is just so beautiful because you say, well, that's the broken heart of the Father, and he's given himself to me. He's giving his life to me at the cross. So this thing I've tried to achieve all my life, the commandment of God, eternal life, and I've utterly failed at, lo and behold, he's been He's giving it to me all along. Because like the revelation reveals, the lamb is slaughtered from the foundation of the world. So when I get to the cross, I'm at the edge of this illusion that I've been trapped in, and the reality that is the eternal truth. And now here we get to the the answer to the ultimate rhetorical question. 
verse 25, which is, it's very, this is a very interesting verse, and I've seen it translated lots of different ways. I'll just read how the NIV translates it. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Yeah. So, you know, more literally, which helps me because we've been using these terms. And, and I think it's because we've gotten out of touch with the picture that we don't use these terms. But thanks be God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He just kind of says thanks to him. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind that what you were just talking about. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I think what he's saying is, I can, my consciousness can exist in one of two places. I can live out of that inner tent with my father who tells me who I am. And I can, I can live out of believing the gospel or I can live in the, in the outer courts. I can live in my flesh where I'm constantly trying to justify myself. So what is the process of sanctification or the Christian life? It's, it's confessing. It's repentance. It's so repentance doesn't mean try harder. Repentance gets means get a new mind. So repentance means stop trying to justify yourself. Go into that inner sanctuary and believe that you are justified. Um, in other, we call that um, confession of sins and the assurance of pardon. And and then we do all kinds of religious things around it so the church can, can control it. But I think that's, uh, he's saying, believe the gospel. <laughs> and, and that's why the gospel is so important to think of not as a threat, but as a proclamation that you are loved and you are forgiven. And when you believe it, when you live in that inner sanctuary, things will, things will change. When you're not, when, when you're living the old way, that's just a sign. Hey, you must not be in that inner sanctuary. Well, the, what what strikes me is when I just look at this in the Greek, the way the way that the question is answered is "charis de to theo," and so grace. I mean, when I see "charis," it's hard for me not to just see grace, and of course, that's kind of my thing. Grace saves all. So, what's yeah, yeah. What's going there you to go. The, that's your verse, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how am I going to be saved? Well, it's it's the grace. And then day is um, day to theo. The two toe is a dative mm-hmm. there. So it's the, it's the grace which comes from or pointing to God. The uh, Jonathan Mitchell translates the first part of this verse this way: grace, the grace of and the joyous favor from God through Jesus Christ, our owner. Mm-hmm. is his translation of it. But I just like the focus there that who is going to deliver me? Well, it's the grace of it's the grace of God. It's God's grace expressed through us through Jesus Christ that's going to deliver us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you know, Thanksgiving is usually the the word eucharis or good grace. And so grace and Thanksgiving fit together really well. And you're right. I remember looking at this going, hey, that's not really not thanks. It's grace but grace to the God or to, to God or in God or by God, that's that dative through Jesus. Yeah, and I think that's Paul's huge point. In other words, 
look, if you're proud of your Christianity, you, you missed it. You're living in death. If you're grateful and you want to worship him and dwell in him, then you're getting it. That's because he, because he's the creator. So the, the, I guess I, I keep going back to this, that, that salvation really is being okay with your own creation. And if you were created, everything is grace. Absolutely everything. So yeah, I, I love that. Um, when I live in my flesh, I think I have to create myself. When I live in the truth, I believe that I am created and I'm loved. And the word for that, I believe, is faith. And and Paul has been making the argument the whole time that don't turn faith into a work of the law. Faith itself is that seed, that promised seed that was, you know, to Abraham. That's that, that's that thing that somehow becomes one with you in that, that inner tent. Um all right. So, now we have. Okay. So we have now we have gone through all of uh, chapter seven together. And yeah. now our reward is that you get to tell us a poop story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then, so it's funny. You could have all these deep, deep theological conversation. <laughs> and then you think of these things with your kids and go, oh, yeah, that's what that is. That's what, that's what we say. Well, anyway, so I was talking about how stressful it was, you know, for uh, Jonathan. I was just a happy, happy kid. And well, I, maybe I didn't mention this, but um, once he learned about potty training, I just remember what a trauma it was for him. And my heart just broke for him. I remember peeking around the corner one day at our house and, you know, I'm this new father and I watched him. He's talking to his Bambi doll. He's holding his Bambi doll and tears are running down his cheeks. And he says, Bambi, I can't go pee pee in the potty. Can you go pee pee in the potty? And I thought, oh gosh, poor kid. And I and I know what's going on. It's it's that sin cycle. The more he worried about peeing in the potty, the less he was able to do it. The more he worried about pooing in his pants, the more bound up, and the more he would have accidents, and the more he would and the more he would hide from me, you know, and not want to. Um, be around me. There's so many things I learned from potty training. So anyway, um, Susan finally said, you know, Peter, you, you and John got the same equipment. You both got the same stuff. And she got this book called Potty Training Today. And she said, uh, since you got the same business, I'm going to go, I'm going to go shopping. And I, re I remember her leaving Elizabeth with me too, which was unfair. I think she thinks she took Elizabeth with her. But anyway, she said, I'm going to go shopping and you're going to follow this book. By the end of the day, John will be potty trained. And the theory in the book was that if once, once your child has a, a poo poo in their underwear, then you walk together to the toilet and you pull the, and you put it in the potty together and change the underwear to show them that the poo poo goes in the potty. So, um, I don't know. We had probably tried that a few times. So she left. And I remember I waited until, you know, John looked like he had an accident. And I could tell because he would try to hide from me. Now, this should all remind you of the garden story. And remember that the poo is like the visible sign of our sin nature, right? So the problem is, what do I do with my sin? And the flesh tells John, you hide it. That's what you do with that. So I found John and I remember I walked him to the bathroom and he's wearing this little white shirt and these pull-ups. And I stood him in front of the, of the toilet and I pulled his underwear down. So the visible expression of his sin, sin nature is lying there in his little pull-ups. And I had to turn in order to get some toilet paper. And I think Elizabeth was crawling around or something. 
And I, I turned and looked away and I, and I turned back around just in time to see this. John looks both directions. He looks right, then he looks left, then he reaches down, grabs a visible expression of his sin nature and just hucks it at the toilet with his hand. It hits the back of the, of the lid and falls off in the bowl, like three points, like he made the basket. Then I remember he turns and he looks at me and this huge smile comes across his face as if to say, daddy, aren't you proud of me? And then he takes his dirty hand and just starts wiping it across his little white shirt, you know? And I remember at that moment looking at him and and thinking, I am so proud of you. Like, it just hit me that, you know, the thing I want right now, the thing I've always wanted is faith. I want him to trust me. And yeah, we would have to work on the poo because I don't want John to, I want John to learn how to use the toilet. You know, that's going to be a valuable skill later in his life. But the thing I, the thing I want is faith. And so I just remember this, this thought like, God, that's the way you look at us. And I don't know that I was ever more proud of my son than when I looked at him standing there covered in filth and yet filled with faith. And I think that's what Paul is saying. And, and if, you know, and, and if we suddenly become, and, and, the, and the thing is, John's looking at me. So faith is like this, faith is this communion in this moment. We were suddenly in the inner tent, you know, and once mm-hmm. John can live from that place, well, then we'll get the poo-poo in the potty. And my, my concern was never really poop. It was faith. And which is fascinating because, you know, if you get into the Old Testament law, there's all kinds of laws about poop. But by the time Jesus is crucified, you know, he's covered in our poop. And he trusts the Father from that place. And that's the spirit that he gives us, I think, through through his death and resurrection. And um, that's what that's what God that's what God delights in, and that's what we come to delight in in, in the inner tent. When I'm struggling with, with sin and, and all stressed about it, sometimes I think of John standing there covered in filth but full of faith. I think of my father's tent, and and I think, okay, God, I, I just need to sit with you and and just and not hide the, the crap. Just show it to you. I, I I really don't have the ability to clean myself up. But when I do that, he cleans me up. And then I'm ready to walk out into the world once again. Well, thank you so much for sharing your poop stories and your, <laughs> and your tent stories. I think there's just a lot that we can be thankful for and feel God's grace with us, even when we're having, even when we're having troubles and trials. So the seventh chapter of, of Romans, as I think something a lot of us, we can really identify with it. And there's some things in there that are hard, you know, hard to read, but there's some really, really encouraging things mm-hmm. in there for us to read as well. So I've yeah. enjoyed going through all this with you. And I, I see that. So the next, the next place we get to go somewhere in the future is uh, the eighth chapter of Romans. And I'll, uh, I'll look forward to that. Yeah, that's a, it's beautiful stuff. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David 
or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.